Welcome to Deeper Levels, a podcast about pathology, medicine, and science, mostly. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome two special guests, Drs. Mukherjee and Pantanowitz. I have asked them here today in part to discuss their recent publication, Eye Tracking and Cytotechnology Education, Visualizing Students Becoming Experts, published in the Journal of the American Society of Cytopathologies, March-April edition. Dr. Mukherjee is currently an assistant professor and education coordinator in the University of Nebraska Medical Center Cytotechnology Education Program. She received her bachelor's degree in physical therapy and a master's degree in anatomy in India and a post-baccalaureate certificate in cytotechnology and a PhD specializing in incorporation of virtual microscopy technology in cytotechnology education from UNMC. She has developed unique online education for UNMC Cytotechnology Program's distance education outreach to train cytotechnology students at multiple sites within the United States and continues research in the areas of virtual microscopy, e-learning, and eye movement analysis. Dr. Liron Pantanowitz is currently a professor of pathology and biomedical informatics at the University of Pittsburgh, but is moving to the University of Michigan in June as the head of anatomic pathology. He received his medical degree in South Africa and completed his anatomical and clinical pathology residency training at Harvard in Boston at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and is board certified in APCP, cytopathology, and clinical informatics. In his current role at UPMC, he is the vice chair for pathology informatics and also the director of cytopathology. He is widely published in the field of pathology informatics and cytopathology. I'd like to welcome both of you and thank you so much for joining me here today. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Yeah, Natalie, thank you. Yeah, welcome to both of you. So for today's show, I would like to talk with both of you about this very interesting paper and expand to a more general discussion regarding artificial intelligence and computer learning and pathology, the role that remote learning is playing and will play in medical education, and also the evolving field of cytopathology. Dr. Mukherjee, I'd like to start with you. Why did you choose virtual microscopy technology as your area of study in pursuing your PhD? Sure. Um, actually, I was given an opportunity to do PhD when I was a student at UNMC Cytotechnology Program, and that was the first time I heard about virtual microscopy. So for those who don't know what virtual microscopy or whole slide imaging is, uh, it is an digital imaging technology which involves scanning specimens on glass slides and converting them into digital images. We also call this as virtual images. And with the help of a software, these images are viewed and screened on the computer. Actually, we can pan around the image and change the magnification, adjust the focusing. So in essence, I would say, you know, virtual microscopy kind of simulates the experience of looking at a glass light and the light microscopy. So when I started reading the articles about it, I became really interested about the advantages of this technology in education. Like, you know, digital images can be annotated, text descriptions can be added to the annotation, and up to four digital images can be brought on the same screen to show the differences, uh, which obviously cannot be done on a glass lights and light microscopy, right? So particularly, I was interested in the advantage of students accessing the digital images from anywhere at any time. I really liked this because this enhances the online education, which I'm always interested in. 
So however, uh, at that time, virtual microscopy was mainly used in medical schools. And there are differences between medical schools and cytotechnology programs. And as you know, medical students usually have many faculty members and students. And medical students may not screen the whole slide to interpret the diagnosis, uh, whereas cytotech programs are usually kind of shorter program with fewer faculty members and students. For example, you know, our program is a one-year post-baccalaureate certificate program, which has only two faculty members, including me. So uh, also, you know, cytotech students uh, have to screen the whole slide to interpret them. So mm -hmm. if, you, if, you, if you consider virtual microscopy, it is an expensive technology because you need to have a scanner and you need to have manpower and time to digitize and annotate and put everything together. So the feasibility of incorporating virtual microscopy in cytotech education was unclear at that time. So that kind of led to my PhD topic. I wanted to investigate the feasibility of adding this virtual microscopy curriculum in CT education. Um, and with that education, I found that virtual microscopy is not only feasible, but also a very promising additional resource to the traditional light microscopy in cytotech education. So when I became faculty, I successfully incorporated this technology in our curriculum. And uh, I'm happy to say that that led to our program becoming the only program in the United States that offers online education. And so convenient for right now. You were really exactly. ahead of your time. Yeah. yeah. Um, Dr. Pantanowitz, what about you? How did you select your areas of subspecialty training? Um, were you always interested in informatics? Um, Natalie, thanks for the question. Um, yes and no. I, I came to the U.S. from South Africa 20 years ago. And when I arrived at um, Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston, I was amazed at uh, the comparison between the technology available in the U.S. to Africa. And so I, one of the things was, um, you know, the amount of digital imaging and lab information systems. And so being attracted to that, I, uh, you know, landed up uh, pioneering a lot of those projects with uh, my attendings. And so during my entire residency, I apprenticed in pathology informatics, although at that time it was not called pathology informatics. And those attendings that took care of the lab information system and other IT uh, projects um, got me involved in national organizations at the time, such as the CAP. Mm -hmm. Having completed my uh, having completed my APCP residency, um, I was pretty interested in single cells and landed up doing two fellowships, one of them in cytopathology and the other in hematopathology. Uh, oh. my, my subsequent career, though, has, uh, you know, taken me down the path of cytopathology, which I've been very happy with. Mm -hmm. uh, and so for my first job, when I was uh, given a job um, as an attending, I was kind of thrown into the deep end as the director of pathology informatics. Uh, well, I bet you were you maybe one of the only people who had training in it, because 20 years ago, it had to be pretty new in the field of pathology to be have formal training in informatics, I would imagine. Yeah, know? yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. there, there was no uh, curriculum for residency programs or even a fellowship really at that time. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So I became the director of pathology informatics and at that, uh, you know, stage, um, you know, learned uh, on the job and networked and started to contribute a lot to the field. Um, a textbook, started the Journal of Pathology Informatics, and so forth. And I've always been interested in national organizations and participating uh, at a national level. 
Um, and so I ended up working with several organizations, such as the College of American Pathologists, uh, the Association of Pathology Informatics, the Digital Pathology Association, and also the ASC, American Society of Cytopathology, and have participated in some guidelines because a lot of people ask questions, how do we practically do stuff and what's the right or wrong thing to do? And that's, for example, how the uh, whole site imaging guideline evolves and uh, has helped people. So mm-hmm. my current job, uh, uh, I maintain both passions and I wear two hats, uh, you know, every day, one being the vice chair for pathology informatics and the other being a director of cytopathology. Um, and actually, those two hats served me very well because when Manju and I partnered up on this particular project, it was perfect because it was an intersection between uh, informatics, uh, imaging, eye tracking, and cytopathology. And so mm-hmm. that led us to this particular project. Yeah, yeah. So that segues nicely into my next question. Um, could you please tell me about what brought about the idea for this study using eye tracking technology and how you designed it? Dr. McCurgy, we can start with you. And then Dr. Pintanowitz, as the senior author, you can add your thoughts. Sure. Um, I'm always happy to talk about this. Um, actually, uh, you know, I attend Visions Pathology Conference as much as possible, and it is one of my favorite conferences to attend. And a few years ago in that conference, I had a chance to see a poster about pathology residents using eye tracker in observing digital images of surgical specimens. Looking at that poster, I was really excited to actually see where the residents were looking at in the digital images. So that made me think that eye tracker would be a wonderful tool to understand the screening skills of our cytotic students because, you know, uh, it's often difficult for us as an educator to clearly understand which skill a cytotic student is lacking or having difficulty with. Uh, I can give you an example, like uh, when a student interprets an abnormal case as a normal, it is difficult for us to know if the student did not look at the abnormal cells lacking locator skills or looked at the, uh, looked at the abnormal cells but still thought that those were normal um, lacking mm-hmm. interpretation skills, you know. So, um, so I thought this eye tracking would be an excellent tool for understanding this. And since we already had the digital images, I wanted to take advantage of that technology to uh, kind of test the potential of eye tracking technology in our students' screening skills. Um, And then, uh, you know, um, like any other studies, we started facing problems one by one. And the first problem was obviously we didn't have an eye tracker. So (laughs) I had to apply for an Intel grant and we bought the eye tracker. And then uh, came the problem of you know fewer study participants. As I previously mentioned, cytotech programs are usually have fewer students, right? So even after adding the students from one of our distant sites, we still had fewer students. Um, so uh, myself and Dr. Amber Donnelly, she's the program director of our program, and she's also one of the co-investigators of the study. Decided mm-hmm. to you know partner up with other programs which might have similar interest. So immediately I thought of Dr. Pantelis because as everyone knows he's an expert in digital imaging technology. Um, so when I approached him with this idea, I was in a doubt whether he would accept it or not. But um, I was thrilled and honored to know that he was interested in the study and would like to collaborate. Um, so I guess having fewer students was not bad, as it opened up a wonderful collaboration between UNMC and UPMC. Uh, so I want to take this opportunity to actually uh, say thank you to Dr. Pantanovitz for believing in me and all the encouragement and advice he has given me for conducting the study. 
So that's lovely. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. once we decided on this collaboration, uh, you know, we uh, discussed and agreed upon the aims of the study, and we wanted to compare the eye movements of cytotech students uh, when they are interpreting. Um, static images, gynecological cytology images. And we wanted to do them at three different periods of time so that we can compare how their screening skills are progressing towards the end of the program. And also we wanted to compare their eye movements with that of uh, uh, qualified or um, experienced cytotechs. So uh, we also decided to collect data from students at three different sites. One, our UNMC campus students, and the other site was uh, uh, Carl Clinic, which is in Illinois. It is one of our distant sites and at UPMC. So, and then the next problem was, you know, the data collection part, um, because I have the eye tracker here at UNMC, uh, but students are at UPMC at Illinois. So we decided uh, that I would travel there to collect the data instead of making them fly over here. We didn't have that much of money in our grant. So uh, I decided to go there. Um, it was the, the data collection part was really challenging, but I thoroughly enjoyed organizing it. Um, so uh, we decided to ship the eye tracker before I go there. So I had to talk to the IT personals at the sites uh, to talk about you know, eye tracking and software and the computer compatibilities uh, to install the eye tracker and everything. And then once I shipped the uh, uh, eye tracker, the IT personals all kind of, you know, set up everything and got everything ready before I even went there. Um, and then, you know, I really have to thank all the IT personnel, you know, at all three sites, because without them, I don't think we would have uh, done this project really well. So, yeah. and I went there and then I collected data and then I had to ship the eye tracker to another site and then I traveled there and then collected data. So it was going on. It was, as I told you, it was hectic, but I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, and, you know, our collaboration was really nice and our communication was really great. At one level, we thought there is no need for me to physically go to the other sites to collect data. So we realized that our co-investigators, Karen Worley, uh, program director at UPMC Cytology School, and Brian Demet, who is an education coordinator at Carl Clinic, could collect data at their sites mm -hmm. and send it to me. And that was easy as well, convenient. So we ended up doing um, like that for the rest of the data collection of study. Yeah, it's amazing how, uh, you know, it, it lands on on my desk in this journal and it doesn't it doesn't say in there that you were hoofing it around the country with you know shipping eye tracking machines it's, it's amazing yeah. so um yeah that's 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 amazing um dr pantanowitz would you like to add your thoughts yeah so you know when manju explained the project and uh, how we could participate with our side of technology school um you know i thought it was a perfect um uh, time to actually get trainees exposed to digital pathology. And the reason, mm -hmm. and the reason being, Natalie, is that, um, as you, know, you probably know and many other pathologists know, we're undergoing a, a bit of a digital transformation in pathology. Yes, whether we like it or not. Yeah. And it, it's, it's necessary, but I think painful for some people, yes. Sure, the, uh, yeah. we're, we're moving towards a digital platform and hopefully the benefits will be you know, artificial intelligence one day running on top of that platform. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. we, we evolved all the way from taking static snapshots, uh, photos to whole slide imaging, which is scanning the whole slide. And um, 
That happened first in surgical pathology, and uh, cytology has been lagging a little bit behind uh, for several reasons. Uh, the same hurdles, which is the cost of equipment or regulations or just uh, technology not being good enough or systems not being interoperable, sort of being easy to plug and play, cytology had two unique uh, problems to be overcome. Uh, number one is the material itself. When you put cells on a slide, um, you don't often take slices of them. So the cells remain under a cover slip in three dimension, especially mm-hmm. the, the bigger the cluster. So it's hard to focus on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been a bit of a drawback with the uh, whole side imaging. And then the other thing is uh, the workflow in cytopathology is a little bit different because uh, number one, every single cell on the slide has to be screened and examined, um, not just a big picture overview of just the architecture. And uh, that's usually handled by cytotechnologists who annotate or dot these areas and then pass that on to a pathologist. And so uh, cytology systems today, they're getting there, but are not ideal. Um the great thing is the potential applications you have if you go digital. Uh, the clinical ones, uh, which people are using today, is mostly telepathology. And that's just uh, sharing an image. It makes much more sense. And it's logistically way easier to share an image than it would be uh, to move a doctor around or to move a patient around. But the other thing which I was very interested in is there are non-clinical applications for digital pathology, which people are already using and have been for a while, which mm-hmm. is the education benefits and especially tutoring, uh, you know, people in medical and allied healthcare programs. And so when Manju approached me with this idea, it was the perfect way actually to introduce trainees, especially at our program in Pittsburgh, to this mm-hmm. new emerging technology, because, um, you know, who better to actually train and become competent on digital imaging technology than the people entering the field? So I think it was a you know a perfect synergy. Uh, Manju had this great idea, and I was looking for the perfect opportunity to involve trainees and you know get them to use the technology as it was intended. Right, right, and um, just to loop back around to your idea of education, I think in medical schools, um, Manju, you mentioned earlier that that's a place where virtual slides had been used for a while. And I think that probably is born out of the fact that histology and pathology sections are relatively short and microscopes are relatively expensive. But once you catalog images, they're there in perpetuity for class after class to use. And now that uh, being in a physical lab with students and, you know, bending over their shoulder to show them how to focus a microscope or where the cell of interest is probably isn't a good idea for the next few months at least. Um, mm. It's it's really nice that we've already got these systems in place. So yeah. it's per- like I said, it's perfect timing. <laughs> um, so can you, you all please explain the technology for visual tracking? Um, I read the description in the article and I'm still picturing something like um, that new technology they have at the eye doctor. Um, can you kind of describe to the people listening and to me what it looks like when someone's using eye tracking technology? Sure. Um, you know, eye tracking is basically measurement of eye activity, right? And an eye tracker is a device to measure the eye activity. Um, in general, you know, there are two components of the eye tracker, uh, light source and a camera. And the light source usually infrared is directed to the eye and the camera kind of tracks the reflection of the light source and the software process the data. 
And there are two types of um, eye trackers mainly. One is you know, screen-based, which is also called as remote or desktop. And the other one is glasses, uh, which is also called as mobile. And screen-based eye tracker collects the data of whatever the eyes are looking at on the computer monitor. And uh, whereas in the mobile eye tracker, the camera and light source are in the eye glasses. So it collects data of whatever you see wherever you go. And, uh, you know, you can measure a lot of things using this eye tracker, but mainly you can see the fixation points, that is where the eyes are looking at and, you know, fixation duration, tax duration, and fixation in region of interest, that is the total number of fixation falling within a particular region. And the data can be seen as gaze path and heat map uh, mainly. And in our study, we used remote eye tracker. So it didn't look anything like you would see in an eye clinic. Um, okay. <laughs> so, I mean, I was trying to picture the most science fiction-y kind of thing I yeah, could. Yeah, but, but there are, I have seen some eye trackers like that, you know, where you, mm -hmm. you, you would place your head on the eye tracker and it kind of step mm -hmm. places the head and everything. But mm -hmm. uh, we didn't use that. We used just a remote eye tracker. It was really a small eye tracker. Um, so, I, you know, I can ex um, explain briefly how we did the data collection process so you would have an idea how it mm -hmm. would look like, uh, you know, when you're using remote eye tracker. So we, uh, we placed the eye tracker at the bottom of the computer monitor uh, and we installed the uh, software in the computer. And then when the uh, participant entered into the room for data collection, uh, we asked them to sit comfortably on a chair facing the computer monitor so there is nothing kind of, you know, wire connected uh, between them and the eye tracker or anything like that. They were just comfortably sitting on the chair. Um, and um, uh, once we calibrated the eye tracker, there was like a script uh, shown on the computer monitor. So basically the participant just uh, looked at the script and followed the steps uh, mentioned in the script. And um, they were start, they started interpreting the static images. And while they were uh, interpreting the images, the camera in the eye tracker tracked the eye movements of the participants. And that's how we measured students' task duration, uh, number of fixation points, gaze observations, and particular region of interest. And we also documented the students' interpretation of images. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, what do you think were the most important findings of the study? Did it tell you things you didn't expect or already know? And um, again, we can start with uh, Dr. Mukherjee. Sure. So we think the most important findings was that um, we found that the eye tracking technology is not only novel, but it also provides objective data for evaluating students and thus kind of validating our teaching methods. Um, our study provided data to actually kind of visualize the improvement of students' speed and accuracy in interpreting images at the end of the training program when we compared to the beginning. Um, I should say it was really interesting uh, and rewarding to see how the gaze path and the intensity of heat map and the number of fixation points on the images reduced gradually towards the end of the program. That was really, really interesting for us to see. And also from the study, I think we learned that the eye tracker helps us to kind of identify um, and understand students' difficulty in certain skills, you know, such as locator and interpretation skill. For example, I can say, um, you know, one of the students at the beginning of our training program looked at, uh, you know, a normal endocervical cells in the image and called it as uh, adenocarcinoma in situ. So mm -hmm. we, we know that um, the student is having difficulty in the interpretation skills, right? So I think with this technology, uh, it kind of gives us an opportunity to tailor our training activities according to the student's needs. 
Mm-hmm. So that would be really helpful for an educator. And, mm-hmm. and also, you know, we can see uh, students' eye movements in real time. So that gives us an opportunity to kind of provide immediate feedback to the students, uh, which is, again, really helpful and exciting, too. Um, and the one thing that we did not expect was the technical issues we had uh, during the data oh. collection. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, I mean, I would expect it if I had anything to do with it. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Like what were, yeah. yeah. So, you know, we had a difficulty in calibrating eye tracker with certain uh, participants mm-hmm. and it took like, you know, like 20 minutes or 30 minutes till we couldn't uh, get the calibration done. So we had to, uh, you know, not use that participant. You know, we, we couldn't continue with that participant at all. And mm-hmm. the other one was, you know, we had some missing data. So once we collected the data, when we went back and saw uh, there were some missing data, the gaze path was not connected. So mm-hmm. those were some of the difficulties which I did not expect to see in the study. Uh, right. But but we learned it definitely. So next time when we do, we need to get some, you know, do some precautions, I guess. Well, yeah. And I mean, you did a lot of work. So to have a few glitches here and there, probably, <laughs> I mean, that's really great. You did uh, this is great work. So um, Dr. Pantanowitz, would you like to comment? Yeah, I mean, you know, when someone reads that article, Natalie, like you read the article, mm-hmm. it sort of mm-hmm. uh, seems, okay, that's a neat study and it's easy to do. And and, and even Manju explaining to us now, you know, the technical uh, side of this, um, it really... I don't think I would claim that it was easy to do. <laughs> I was <laughs> I was pretty confused at first, but yeah, go ahead. I'm yeah. sorry. So there is, there, uh, you know, a lot of time was invested in actually getting to mm-hmm. know eye tracking and getting mm-hmm. to use this technology uh, to our advantage. And um, there is a steep learning curve which you know fortunately we were able to overcome those it hurdles but you know the instructions when you read uh, you know how to use it they don't tell you what do you do if someone's wearing eyeglasses does eye tracking work then or not and so you know we had to learn a lot and i will say that manju is now an expert in the area and, and hopefully mm. we can continue these studies but mm-hmm. um my my uh my um my feeling about this particular study is I think it's important that in the field of pathology, uh, we start to do more of these studies. Um, I was aware of eye tracking um, publications, especially in the radiology literature. Uh, They had used this before. Uh, Experts in the field like uh, Dr. Elizabeth Krupinski studying perception had worked with radiologists for many years and has had great influence in the field of radiology. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, they now know, for example, when radiologists are looking at mammograms and trying to find small calcifications, um, how close should they sit to a monitor? Um, does it make a difference when they get tired? Uh, the ambient environment, does it make a difference if the room's light or dark? And all of those things are important. And uh, eye tracking studies have helped actually provide advice in that field. Um, in the world of anatomical pathology, including cytopathology, there are very few publications. And um, there's one publication I remember that was published by uh, Dr. Claudio Mello-Toms, who's a world expert in perception. And in fact, uh, she helped advise the FDA um, several years ago when they were looking to um, come up with um, you know, guidelines on how to clear pulse on imaging products. Uh, she had published a paper in the Archives of Pathology Lab Medicine in 2012 looking at the perceptual analysis of reading dermatopathology virtual slides by PATH residents. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way Claudia and her team at the University of Pittsburgh did this was um, they took two groups of pathology uh, residents, those who had 
had their derm path rotation and those who had not, and asked them to look at um, you know approximately twenty whole site images of inflammatory skin dermatoses. And for those of you who have ever tried to do that, who are not derm path bordered, uh, that's not a simple thing to do. <laughs> yes. But using the eye tracking software, uh, basically what Claudia had uh, uncovered was um, there are two types of search strategies that you can follow when someone's looking at a digital image. The first one is uh, very focused and efficient. That person who's looking at the image knows exactly where to look at. They don't waste a lot of time. They don't zoom in and out. They don't change magnifications. And usually when you, uh, that person gets the diagnosis correct. Hmm. The other strategy is someone who has a much more dispersed eye, eye tracking uh, pattern. They're all over the place uh, and they waste a lot of time. They do not have a time-consuming strategy. They zoom in and out and they jump around and they're very distracted. And it turns out that when they give you a final diagnosis, chances are it's incorrect. So mm-hmm. it helps to learn, uh, to use eye tracking to learn that and then use that to tutor people. What If you dig a little bit deeper, it's quite interesting when someone makes a pathology or a cytopathology diagnosis, there's a lot going on. And, um, you know, these are things that Manju, myself, and you do on a daily basis when we make a diagnosis. There's a lot that's happening in your brain and how perception affects that. Um, it's a problem-solving strategy because what we have to do is, number one, when you look at a a patient's biopsy or pap smear, uh, you have to recognize what's relevant and you Mm -hmm. have to distinguish that from what's irrelevant in the background, which is a distractor. And then you base your diagnosis on things such as your visual expertise, your knowledge and your experience. Um, And, you know, people have taken this to an even deeper level where they looked at this problem-solving strategy that pathologists and cytopathologists have, and there are four processes that go on. And so, Natalie, in my brain, when I look at a, a case every day or when you look at one and when Manju is screening a case, there are four things that are happening, and we probably don't even know this. Um, the first thing is there's some cognition happening. Uh, one is we are guided to looking at something on that image or slide uh, by perception, your attention, So for those of us who are distracted and telephones ringing all the time, it's important to be aware of that. Uh, Your search strategy, how well you recognize patterns, uh, how you then your brain generates a a hypothesis that you think you know what's going on. And now you start to verify that by looking at certain criteria. The next next step that your brain undertakes when you're trying to make a diagnosis is you, you figure out how to communicate that, which is the hard thing for trainees is how do you actually generate a report or whatever I've seen now and what I think is important, how do I put that into a report? And then that really requires the next two steps, uh, which is what takes someone from being a trainee to a you know practicing cytologist or pathologist, which is one, requires some empirical knowledge, and two, uh, what's considered a medical conduct. You need to actually understand the consequence of your diagnosis in the management of this patient. So if you're going to call this Mm -hmm. pap smear a high grade, you need to know what that's going to mean subsequently. And, you know, that all, all of that happens kind of instantaneously. Many of us can look at a case in, you know, in a minute and put that all together. Um, So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I think, uh, you know, there's a lot that goes on. Uh, Manju didn't, you know, 
Uh, we didn't even have time in the paper to talk about all of that, but that's kind of a, you know, eye tracking gives you a little bit of a window into that world. Yeah. 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 Um, it's, it's very interesting that you, you talk about the two patterns of looking at a case, how focused you look at a case. Um, I have memories of looking at unknown slides, which were always one of my favorite things as a resident, as a first year resident, just looking at the same slide for 20 minutes and still not knowing what I was looking at. So it doesn't surprise me that that's true. Um, and how um, one thing that I think, uh, you know, you can do it through virtual methods, but I think one of the most important things is as a trainee, watching someone else do those things that you're talking about, that attending physicians, pathologists, we don't even really put into words on a daily basis, but just watching how someone else looks at a slide, how they approach it. Um, I remember sitting across the scope and watching people interpret frozen sections and how differently different people did it. But that ability to, like you say, go to the most interesting and diagnostic part of a slide. Um, it's something that I think you just learn by watching a lot of the time and you don't even know you're learning those skills. So that's very, very interesting. Um, uh, Dr. McCurdy, did you have something else to say or? No, I just wanted to say, you know, like uh, similar to Dr. Panton, I would say, you know, I think with the eye tracker, we can actually analyze the screening skills of students interpreting whole slide images, you know, when they are mm -hmm. using the navigation, magnification, focusing features and everything. And then, mm -hmm. uh, as we discussed before, you know, we can actually develop like a training tool. And uh, we kind of envision that this developed training tool can be potentially be shared uh, among all the cytotech programs and also the pathology residency program. Um, right. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, it would be. Interesting. I know um, I'm doing that virtual American Board of Pathology um, mm -hmm. thing. I don't know, Dr. Pantanowitz, if you're in that age cohort or that cohort where you have to recertify. But at the end of each module, it tells you how you do compared to your peers. I always really enjoy that part because it kind of tells you how you're doing. So I can imagine as a cytotechnology student, if you could tell people, you know, mm -hmm. this is the way you looked at a slide. This mm -hmm. is the way the other people at your training level looked at the slide. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's that's also very interesting. So um, to transition just slightly, um, both of you are educators and involved in the field of cytopathology. In your paper, you note the need to teach cytotechnology students accurate slide screening, which requires students to locate cells of importance and interpret them, but also note that knowing where the disconnect is between these two skills, like we've talked about, can hamper learning in the areas. And this is a problem, like we said, that you might solve with this technology. So what role do you see for this technology moving forward um, for cytotechnology students and also for pathologists? Um, do you want to touch on that any more than you have, um, Dr. Mukherjee? Yeah, sure. You know, like the way I said before, we can develop those training tools. And, and also, I think it will be a really good idea to record the um, record when cytotechnologists and cytopathologists are screening whole slide images. And then we can develop e-learning modules to demonstrate to the students how to you know, screen uh, whole slide imaging. I think that mm -hmm. would be uh, really important um, for cytotechnology education and pathology residence education as well. Uh, especially, you know, we are using more and more of digital images now nowadays. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and Dr. Pantanowitz, did you want to comment as well? 
Yeah, I think, you know, now that whole site imaging technology is uh, available, it plays a very important role in education. And it has played a very important role in education. And I'm talking specifically, you know, cytopathology education. Um, many people have built virtual atlases. Uh, one great example is the International Academy of Cy Cytology, the IAC. If you go onto their website, they're free virtual atlases. Um, mm -hmm. Some journals have started to support uh, so-called interactive publications. Uh, within the paper, they include a QR code, for example, and you can get access to a whole slide image or, or one or two to actually experience the case yourself that they're publishing about. Um, mm -hmm. People are using whole slide imaging today for proficiency testing. Um, you know, if you don't have access to the slides, you can do it through digital means for proficiency testing. And even the American Board of Pathology uh, and other boards, you know, have uh, also started to introduce whole slide imaging. So it forces trainees to actually become competent with navigating such images. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's important, as all of us now realize uh, with COVID, the post-COVID world, we're going to be doing much more telework than we probably have mm -hmm. done before. And so digital pathology is definitely going to assist with that. Um, right. uh, the pros of that uh, are, number one, you know, once you digitize a slide, it's much easier to access it from anywhere and at any time. For the students, that could be, you know, on a weekend at Starbucks. They don't have to come into the hospital or the lab to do that. Um, for those of us who actually teach and have to build these training sets, um, it's much easier to maintain these. You know, the slides don't fade and they don't break and they don't get lost or mm -hmm. stolen. So that's much mm -hmm. better. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I have found it's much easier to actually include more rare and exotic cases into teaching sets. Uh, today, especially in cytology, if uh, you only have one FNA or one pap smear with a rare condition, uh, you know, people are reluctant to put that in a teaching set because it's going to get lost or broken. Uh, mm -hmm. But now that they, you can scan it, people are including, you know, these more interesting cases, which is great for trainees. And mm -hmm. uh, it's also much easier to annotate a slide. Um, you can, you know, mark up certain areas, have explanations and guide and tutor the trainees. Of course, the drawback is the technology is a barrier. You need to acquire it, buy it, for example. But there are some great uh, free commercial platforms out there, uh, Path Presenter being one example, uh, mm -hmm. for programs or, you know, individual departments to, you know, at least get trainees uh, or build a virtual atlas. Um, you know, so I think that's very important. But the question is, if we do this, in other words, if we do start to teach and train, people, uh, especially Cytotech students, to use whole site images and even screen. And as Manju told you, her program in Nebraska, uh, you know, they can do this all online. They can teach Cytotech students cytopathology and they can teach them how to screen pasmias and read them. But then the thing is, what if they leave their program and they go take a, a job, their first job, that doesn't do uh, digital pathology? Um, will they still be then competent to go back to a glass slide? And, Mm -hmm. uh, you yeah. know, Manju can answer that because, you know, she has actually published a study in this field several years ago in the Journal of, uh, you know, um, uh, Cyto Journal. So, Manju, maybe you could add uh, and tell Natalie a little bit uh, about how your program handles the competency of Cytotex. Sure, Dr. Pantelovitz. Um, You know, actually, before we decided to incorporate a virtual microscopy in our education, uh, we wanted to make sure that the students trained on virtual microscopy can apply their knowledge on glass slide screening. 
because you mm -hmm. know even now uh, cytotechs are screening only glasslides they are not uh, giving diagnosis on the digital images in the lab right so we, we we don't want the students to be trained on virtual microscopy and as dr pentanavit said uh, they should not have any difficulties in interpreting glasslides when they get a job so uh, we wanted to see this particular aspect, so we asked our, in one of our studies, we asked our cytotech students to use the annotated digital images to learn cellular morphology of, you know, breast, thyroid, and lymph node FNA. Uh, and once they did that, they we gave some unknown daily screening slides, so they screened that as well. So till then, they did not see any glass light uh, of these particular, you know, breast, thyroid, and lymph node FNA cases. And then once they get practice with the unknown daily screening slides and everything, we ask them to interpret 10 glass slides uh, using light microscopy. And then we compared uh, that testing scores of the glass light testing scores with that of a group which were trained using light microscopy and tested on glass slides. So uh, when we did the statistical analysis, we found that there is no difference between, you know, the group who were trained on virtual microscopy and tested on glass lights and the group which had, you know, light microscopy and glass lights for training and testing purposes. So that kind of Tell, told us that uh, the students can apply cytological criteria learned through virtual microscopy to glass light screening. Um, and yeah. of, of course, it was like a small pile of data, but I think it is a great uh, finding to move forward uh, in training uh, uh, cytology students with virtual microscopy. Right, and, and not only uh, for the students in cytotechnology, but also as we uh, move a lot of pathology training, I would imagine for at least the next few months exactly. to a virtual format, we don't have to feel that those months will be lost or not applicable when those trainees go back to, you know, a post COVID world, whenever that happens with glass slides and multi-headed scopes again. So yeah. that's, um, that's really encouraging. So um, exactly. So yeah. even yeah. even now, you know, our students are supposed to be in clinical rotation and screening glass lights, but because of this pandemic, you know, some of the labs mm -hmm. are still not allowing them. So we are asking the students to screen virtual slides to just to mm -hmm. keep up their, you know, accuracy and speed. Uh, and yeah. we hope that when they return to the lab, they could, um, you know, accurately uh, give yeah. the interpretations of glass lights. Yeah. yeah, I think when we can all go safely back to our normal work, mm -hmm. um, we're all going to be so excited. Yep. Everyone's going to be thrilled to screen slides again in person. <laughs> so yeah. um, now to move on to a broader topic of digital and computer learning and pathology. Um, I'm a member of the Zennial generation, which I didn't know was a thing until um, everyone kept calling me a millennial, but I felt too old to be a millennial and I almost am. So we're noted for having an analog childhood and a digital adulthood. I can already see a difference in the trainees I'm training who are in medical school and residency right now. So much of their learning takes place on the computer and most of their lectures are recorded. I hear that most are, a lot of the students don't go to the lectures in person, they listen to them on their own time. Um, I rarely see students with pen and paper taking notes. Almost everyone is either writing with some sort of implement on an iPad type device or typing onto a, a laptop. Um, I feel in the past months, I've had to sort of figure out how to interact with students on these um, platforms. And um, it's, it's really important because, of course, we want to keep everyone safe. But 
Given the reluctance that some in pathology have to convert to a digital format, I'd like to hear what you all both think about the role that digital pathology is playing and will play in pathology education. Have you all, as, as two people who've been involved in this for a while, have you noticed more people embracing it as of late? Um, have you changed what you are doing at your institutions regarding education? Um, this time we can start with Dr. Pantanowitz. Yeah, Natalie, I mean, your your observation is actually correct in that, uh, you know, this new generation of, um, you know, pathology trainees and cytotech trainees, uh, you know, have an appetite for going digital. Everything else mm-hmm. in their life is digital, you know, on their mobile devices and so forth. But I think we're currently, uh, you know, the environment I am in and you're in is a little bit of a schizophrenic environment because we're taking these trainees, like medical students, for example, who are digital digitally savvy and who have gone through med school or an allied school, dental school, for example, where there were no microscopes in their medical school. And then those of Mm -hmm. them that want to go into the pathology field, uh, those trainees are now forced to use a microscope and have to learn about color illumination and all these old fashioned things. Um, (laughs) And then we're we're telling them that this, by the way, is going away because we're transforming in the near future to a digital process. And I mean, they were already there. And so, you know, they've regressed a little bit in practice with us. Now, unfortunately, not many departments, labs, cytotech schools have the uh, technology and infrastructure in place to go fully digital. Uh, But I would encourage those programs that uh, do a little bit of this if they could, uh, for example, at least get trainees to participate in tumor boards and other educational events. Uh, Certainly, as I mentioned, the American Board of Pathology requires this. Um, mm-hmm. But I think it's it's imperative because the future pathologists, cytotechnologists, and uh, cytopathologists will we're going to have to become more and better data scientists, especially when we are going to be required to interpret AI output. Ooh, that's terrifying! Thank you for that little nugget. <laughs> um, yeah, data output. Um, uh, Dr. Uh, Mukherjee, would you like to comment? Sure. I think I should say, yes, we have definitely changed what we were doing in education before, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, currently we have like more than 5,000 digital images in our virtual microscopy database. And we have built online curriculum, you know, which has this annotated teaching images, unknown screening images and testing purpose images and everything. And uh, we also used these digital images to record virtual scope sessions, just to mimic our multi-head light microscopy sessions. Um, Students really liked that a lot. And, you know, we also developed many e-learning modules using these digital images as well. So, you know, when our program used only light microscopy and glass lights, the glass lights used by our campus students and distance students were different. Um, but with adding this uh, virtual microscopy curriculum, I think we provided that opportunity for all of our students to use the same slides. Um, and this really helped in standardizing our curriculum. Uh, we provide to campus and distance site students. So, uh, you know, and this kind of resulted in remarkable expansion of our online distance education. Uh, currently, you, we have eight approved permanent sites within the United States. That's really great. And I I know uh, Dr. Pantanowitz talked about using these for um, proficiency testing. To me, that seems like a really good place to take this technology forward. Um, I don't know 
Dr. Pantanowitz, if you have to do different proficiency testing, but sometimes the slides you get are not in great condition. And um, you wonder about the difference in quality between, you know, the slide you're looking at and the slide, maybe someone with a different set or the slide that you're holding, you wonder what it looked like three years ago, maybe when it was made. So maybe transitioning some, especially cytopathology continuing education, because those slides do tend to um, kind of fade with time. That that seems like a really good place to go forward and um, kind of ties in with what you're talking about, Dr. Mukherjee, about having sort of um, uniform um, testing or uniform slides to teach from. So that's really nice. Um, so moving on, uh, to digital pathology. Uh, my early experiences with digital pathology were in residency, and we were using whole scan slides mostly for teaching. Um, since then, I've had kind of limited interaction with this, and I admit that my knowledge is a decade old, but it seemed to me that the limitation at that time was the size of the files, which required a lot of space, and so sometimes when they would load, they were um, slow to load. And so most pathologists who were used to that immediate gratification of slapping a slide onto a stage and getting what they wanted, and like you said, moving through to the important points and going to the next slide, it was frustrating because of the time it took. So what progress has been made in this area? How are you two using whole slide imaging in your practice, in your actual practice? Um, and what areas do you think will be next in this area for pathology? Um, we can start with you, Dr. Mukherjee. Uh, so, well, Natalie, uh, I, yeah. I will say, you know, still file size and storage are a problem for us uh, okay. because, you know, scanning some of our cytology smears, you know, ends up up to like 13 gigabytes. Um, but, yeah, we, we are managing somehow now and we have our slides, uh, you know, scanned uh, in our university's core facility. And once they are scanned, we uh, save them in their encrypted hard drives. And then from the hard drives, we'll upload to our UNMC virtual microscopy website where we kind of, you know, develop and um, have the online curriculum available for our students and also the pathology residents. The problem is we have plenty of uh, 3D digital images, um, you know, but the problem is we cannot upload that in the uh, current software we use uh, to have this virtual microscopy curriculum. So. You know, we have all those 3D digital images in the hard drive, and then to back up those, we save all those things in University Box website. So it's a tedious process. Um, I don't know how we will be handling this in future. Probably we'll have uh, some help from Dr. Petsonovitz. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Did you want to add your uh, add your knowledge, Dr. Pantanowitz? Yeah. So first, um, it is true that a whole slide image, especially if you scan it, an entire slide and it has a lot of material on the slide like a, an FNA smear could have and um, you also want to do it with a lot of Z stacking with multiple levels that you can end up with a very large file size uh, up to 10 or 20 gigabytes. Now at the same time the technology has advanced a lot and so we, we don't move these files around anymore. The only time you really move an image, a whole slide image around, is when you first scan it and you digitize the slide, you have to upload that image to a server. And today, mm -hmm. today with virtual computing and the cloud, et cetera, um, what we do is we rely on the way these files are stored and the viewing technology. As long as you have a good network with a good bandwidth, uh, it's easy to do. And uh, let me explain how that works. I'll give you my analogy. Um, mm -hmm. So the way that a whole site image is created and stored is in the, in the shape of a pyramid. And on the very top of the pyramid, the point, that's your thumbnail, 
which is your really low re low resolution image. That's kind of what the whole slide looks like. And then as you would zoom into the image to sort of look at an area and then look at a particular group of cells and then focus in further to sort of look at the nucleoli, uh, there's more and more information and the resolution gets better. And then those particular tiles of the image get stored deeper down in the layer of the pyramid. So the very bottom layer of your pyramid is uh, the highest resolution for sort of every pixel or area on the slide. Now, Which I would think would be very important, especially for cytopathology, right? Where we're all used to being able to go to the highest power possible with resolution, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So now what happens is, let's say I'm sitting in my office and I want to look at a, a slide of a pap smear. Uh, when I open up the viewer, which is a software to allow me to now look at this file, uh, the software, number one, delivers the first uh, part of the image, which is just the thumbnail at the top so I can see the whole slide. And as I now want to start looking at um, the image and you know pick an area and then zoom in, I don't have to download the entire image onto my desktop. It's the, the viewer will then start to fetch the tiles and deliver them onto my computer so that I can see them when I need them. Mm -hmm. Now, the analogy I would give is as, is as follows. Imagine you want to buy a Harry Potter textbook. And you want to buy How did you know? Okay, yes. And then you want and you want to buy this particular Harry Potter book from Amazon. Uh, when you log onto your computer at home to do this, you number one, do not download the entire Amazon catalog onto your desktop at home. All that information still remains on the Amazon server, but you start to narrow it down and say, okay, I'm interested in books, so it starts to search books. I'm interested in Harry Potter books. And then it starts to deliver just the, the information and data you need onto your desktop. And then you narrow down, this is the particular, uh, you know, Harry Potter textbook I'm interested in. I'd like to see an example of, uh, you know, one page in that book. And only then does that deliver that sort of detail to your desktop. But you've never downloaded the entire catalog. And that's exactly mm -hmm. the same with the whole side image. Um, now, the exciting thing that I think is happening in the field is, um, you know, a lot of us still are, you know, um, limited by uh, the computer power we have in our offices, if, especially if they're hospital issued or the network we're stuck with using. Um, and as Manju mentioned, one of the restrictions is actually storage can be very expensive, especially if you want an extra backup. And that has been a limitation for a lot of pathology departments. But storage is becoming cheaper and cheaper. Um, now, the other exciting thing is at this point in time, uh, everybody who has a different scanner has a different image file format and also mm. and a different viewer. You know, the, the scanner we use at uh, UPMC in Pittsburgh is different to the one that Manju uses. Um, so that means we have different viewers at different file formats. And one of the things that's happening in the, in the industry at the moment is all the different vendors are trying to standardize their image files, um, and they're moving to this DICOM format, um, which is the same that radiology did several years ago. And once we all get onto the same format, then actually it'll be easy for us to, you know, share images, and uh, it doesn't matter which viewer because they will be pretty much agnostic at that point in time. But the mo most important thing, I think, is that 
at this point in time, when we store images, exactly as Manju explained, we put them on our siloed servers in our departments, right. and then we, right. we are responsible for maintaining them and paying for them. But once they're in a DICOM format, like all other medical images, we can ask an enterprise uh, to store them in, in their general enterprise systems, like radiology store their radiology images. Um, and a lot of institutions are bringing up what are called VNAs now. These are called vendor-neutral archives, where uh, there's a lot of imaging that goes on in an institution, not just pathology imaging, but uh, not just radiology imaging, but all the different endoscopies, uh, people take taking pictures of polyps and echo images, etc. All of those can reside in this sort of vendor-neutral archive. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and we could be putting our pathology images there too, as long as we can sort of standardize them. And so the field is heading there, uh, but it is taking some time. And are these, I assume that the VNAs in different medical institutions are still proprietary, if that's the right word, for that institution such that I couldn't log on and access your institution's VNA that's still within just one hospital system. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I think for yeah. privacy and HIPAA purposes, they would right. restrict the right. users. Um, but you could but do it, it seems remotely. Like if, yeah, yeah. If we could anonymize pathology images, which I assume most slides people are scanning are anonymized or could be, it seems like there should be almost like a Wikipedia situation where you could dump all these in one place and then if they could be organized they could be used for teaching but maybe that's too um i don't know i pie in the sky but it would be nice especially in places in the world where perhaps they don't have uh, the same access to histology and microscopy that we do um here in the states so yeah that's very interesting thank you um, since, um, all three of us are involved in the field of cytopathology, I thought we could talk a little bit about that, um, and the changing, uh, landscape in this areas. Um, so the advent of HPV co-testing, um, has seen most institutions, um, note a decrease in pap smear volume. However, non-GYN cytology has grown with the introduction of minimally invasive biopsy procedures and the need for on-site adequacy assessment with resulting subsequent diagnoses on small tissue samples, which are often performed by cytopathologists. To me, this has changed somewhat the role of the cytotechnologist with more sites asking them to move around the hospital and participate in these procedures, either with the pathologist or sometimes on their own. Um, I'm just wondering what you two think about this changing landscape. Um, Dr. Mukherjee, um, given your involvement with cytotechnologist training, we can start with you. Yes, um, and this definitely is changing the role of the cytotechnologist and it is, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, it's really exciting as well. You know, in uh, our Nebraska medicine, we already have two of our cytotechnologists who became as uh, what we call them as high complexity technologists. So they kind of bridge the roles of cytotechnologist, pathology assistant, and gross technologist through, you know, formal and also on on the job training. So in addition to performing the regular duties as cytotechnologists, uh, our high complexity technologists are uh, involved in various activities, you know, to name a few, like cutting frozen sections, crossing biopsies and more complex specimens, triaging kidney biopsies, uh, and also being an on-site operator of telecytology. So definitely it yeah. is exciting and changing. That is great. And Dr. Pantanowitz, would you like to comment? Yeah. So, you know, as, as Manju has just illustrated, what's happening in her program is uh, happening in the field 
now in general. Um, you know, there's a trend for Cytotech training to move away from just sort of the one-year program that they have in place now to creating a master's degree, which is, you know, a two-year degree with much higher mm-hmm. qualification. And I mean, the benefit of that is that uh, such programs will graduate more qualified individuals uh, who could handle more difficult jobs. Uh, you know, in addition to being a cytotechnologist, will have the, you know, the capability to supervise a fish lab, for example. Uh, but mm-hmm. it's not without controversy, and the American Society of Cytopathology and ASCP are involved in this. Uh, for example, those programs who now need to convert to a master's program, uh, can they even accommodate this? If you want to move to a master's program, you kind of need to be affiliated with the university to do so. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, not all programs are affiliated with universities. Uh, to do so also changes the requirements for these particular programs, makes it more difficult and stringent to give a master's degree. Uh, and for those people who actually will now be enrolling, not in a one, but a two-year program, this becomes much more expensive for them to pay for two years. And it's going to take them much longer before they get into the job market. So uh, it's mm-hmm. something that is happening. Um, and for those of us involved in the field, uh, you know, we do need to participate. Uh, but uh, as Manju pointed out, uh, and as you mentioned, you know, as the field changes, uh, you know, and we still need cytotechs. Um, I love my cytotechs. Um, and so, you know, I want to make sure that they are able to still work and help. Um, and so we do need to look at these creative ways to accommodate them. Right. And. And I noticed um, most of the places I've trained and been in settings where there was training going on, the number of procedures in a day can sometimes be overwhelming for one cytopathology fellow to do. And if that's something that you're doing as a fellow, sometimes that's all you do. And there's almost no time to sit at a microscope and, you know, finalize cases. So I think it's a delicate balance to use the cytotechs um, to um, extend those, those, you know, go to some of those procedures and, um, just increasing their comfort level. It's very interesting that they're they're coming up with these um, more complex training programs for just that thing. I didn't know about that. So that's very nice. Thank you for telling me that. And um, I think that brings us to the end of our show today. I want to thank you both so much for coming. At the end of the show, I typically indulge in a little pathology humor, which I admit um, pathology humor almost never funny uh, to anyone but me, but I offer a final diagnosis to wrap up the show um, and you're free to if you want. Um, My final diagnosis for today is that medicine and pathology are changing with increased digital footprints noted not only in education, but also increasingly with diagnostics. And I believe that as physicians, we have to be involved in managing these changes and assuring that they happen in a way that maximizes outcomes and quality for patients. and would you all like to comment or say some a few words on the way out? Thank you so much for having us on your podcast, Natalie. Appreciate it. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, I learned so much. Thank you so much. And you too, Dr. Pantanowitz. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. I mean, for me, Natalie, uh, you know, digital pathology is just a, a new microscope to look at uh, the pathology world. And so, uh, you know, I embrace it. And I'm a proponent for going digital. Uh, and thank you so much for having me on uh, Deeper Levels. Yeah, I think that's going to be the episode title, uh, Digital Microscopy, A New Microscope. I like that. So thank you so much for coming. This has been Deeper Levels, and uh, I'll talk to you all soon.